Hey everyone, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host Sherry and you are listening to From the Dark Side. Whether you're brand new here or a longtime listener, I'm so grateful to have you here. I hope you all enjoyed your holidays. It is now 2024 and I got a lot of cases to bring you this year. So let's get into our first one. A woman named Joanne Matuk Romaine goes missing after leaving an evening prayer service at a church near her home. She will be found eventually, but it was not the outcome everyone was hoping for. Her body was located in the Detroit River and quickly ruled a suicide. This is not an easy case, and there's a lot of gray area and more questions than answers. I first heard about this case back in 2020 or 2021 when it was featured on the Unsolved Mysteries reboot. I binged the whole season in like one night. Lots of interesting cases they've covered, but this one stood out to me. I think because Joanne seemed so likable and pleasant, she seemed like a real amazing woman and didn't deserve to die such a horrific death. I'm not here to sway you one way or the other. I'll just give you the info about the case from sources on the interwebs. A lot of the info I found about her case was not reported on the show. This is episode 97, the case of Joanne Matuk Romaine. Let's get in our time machine and head back to 2010 so we can remember what was happening around that time. There was the Haiti earthquake. The first iPad was released. Instagram was launched and had 25,000 users on its first day. I never used Instagram. That's not a flex. I promise. I had one years ago with like two pictures on it, but that's it. I just never saw the appeal of it, but everyone else seems to love it. The worst oil spill in history took place. The Deepwater Horizon oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico exploded and it spilled millions of gallons of oil into the sea. The first season of The Walking Dead aired and people were captivated by it. The song of the year was Beyonce's Single Ladies. And lastly, the number one movie of 2010 was Avatar. Joanne Matuk Romaine was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Her parents, William and Louise, owned a large wine wholesale store, and they were very successful with it. In fact, it's still around today and open for business. Joanne has four siblings. At the time of the story, Joanne is 55 years old, and she doesn't get along with three out of the four of them. We'll get into that in a moment. In 1980, Joanne married David Romaine. Together, they had three children. Their first child was a daughter named Michelle. Then came a second daughter, Kelly, and then a son named Michael. Joanne was a stay-at-home mom. She kept a lovely house that was very welcoming to anyone who entered. And as the kids grew up, Joanne became the mom that everybody kind of went to. You know how growing up, everyone seems to know someone who has that special mom that took everyone in, always fed you when you visited, took you to McDonald's. Joanne was that mom. She was like a second mom to her kids' friends, and everyone loved her. Their house was the house that all the kids flocked to hang out. Her family said she was religious and her faith was a big part of her life as a devout Catholic. Joanne was known to be overprotective and very cautious. She was always aware of her surroundings. The only place she didn't mind going alone to was church and she always felt safe when she went to church. Joanne's life would change in 2005 though. 
Her and her husband David decided to divorce after 25 years of marriage. Some say Joanne was just unhappy, but according to sources, Joanne had found out that David was sleeping with her best friend. Their divorce was not friendly and amicable. It was messy, and David was very upset. David did eventually marry this other woman. Joanne moved into a home in Gross Point, Michigan, which is a suburb outside of Detroit. She lives there with her three adult children. Michelle is 29, Kelly is 27, and Michael, the youngest, was 20. Joanne is doing good and working part-time at a boutique. She frequently goes out to lunch with her girlfriends. Her daughter says Joanne had lots of friends, so when she went missing, there was a huge search and rescue operation, and people were spread all over the place looking for her. So Joanne goes to these church services throughout the week at St. Paul-on-the-Lake Catholic Church. It's this beautiful old church that sits right near Lake St. Clair. If you come out of the church, there's street parking, a parking lot, and on the other side of the church is a highway. If you walk across that highway, you'll be at the edge of Lake St. Clair. It's a really pretty area. According to Local for Detroit, on the night of January 12, 2010, this is a normal Tuesday night, Joanne's daughters were out eating dinner. Their mom heads to a quick pop-in prayer service at 7 p.m. You just come in for about 15 to 20 minutes and just pray at the altar and then you leave. There's a priest there overseeing everything but not giving a sermon or anything like that. Her kids say she knew exactly when each of these prayer services took place and would stop by a couple times a week. There's usually less than 30 people there. Tonight, there's a lot of snow on the ground, and it's 12 degrees outside. It's hard to fathom just how cold that is. Plus, this church that Joanna's at sits close to a lake, which makes it even colder, just a highway separating in between them. Just a completely frigid night. It wouldn't take someone very long to die from exposure if they're not properly clothed. Joanne parks her Lexus outside of the church and goes inside at 7 o'clock p.m., A witness said they saw Joanne exit the church and walk towards her car at 7.20 p.m. A minute later, a witness said they heard a car alarm going off and looked over and saw it was Alexis sitting nearby. But the alarm didn't go off for very long, and the witness didn't see anyone around the car or anything suspicious, so they shrugged it off. 30 minutes later, this is 7.50 p.m., a witness noticed something suspicious. A man running down the street wearing a lightweight coat and a scarf. He's completely underdressed for 12-degree weather. Meanwhile, Joanne's daughters return home from their dinner around 9 p.m. They notice as they pull in that Mom's Lexus isn't there, which is odd. Their brother Michael is home, and he's sleeping. She was only going to a quick prayer service, which was two hours ago. She never called or texted them to say, Hey, I ran into a friend. I'm going to be late which is what she would have done. This evening, Joanne had dropped Michael off at home. She was going to go get gas and then head to the prayer service. They tried calling her but didn't get an answer because the phone was powered off. They assumed she had turned her phone off while in church and forgot to turn it back on. This happens to a lot of us. You go to the movies and silence your phone and later on realize you never turn that feature back off. They begin to worry as the minutes tick by and mom isn't returning or calling. They are relieved, though, at 9.24 p.m. when they see a set of headlights pull up out front. Yay, Mom's home. How do we know it's 9.24 p.m.? Well, Michelle said she distinctly remembers looking down at her phone to check the time, 
and saw it was 9.24 p.m. They realized this car is not their mom's. Instead, it's a police car. Michelle goes outside to meet the officer and asks him what's going on. He says to her, We found your mom's car abandoned in the church parking lot. Is she missing? Michelle felt something was wrong right away because that Lexus that Joanne was driving was registered to Michelle, not Joanne. So if they ran the tag, it would be Michelle as the owner. Why did this officer say that? How did he know it was her mom driving? Why did he ask if she was missing? As well, a car sitting in a church between the hours of 7 p.m. and 9 p.m., is it really cause for concern? It could be the pastors. It could be a dead battery. Something is wrong, according to Michelle. I'd be freaking out as well. This officer didn't know the family or that Joanne was known to drive Michelle's car. Michelle told Dateline Detroit, no police department in any city all over the world is going to, after two hours, come to your house after a car is parked somewhere and ask if somebody is missing that was driving that vehicle. It's just not going to happen. I tried to put myself in her shoes. Imagine if someone in your family borrowed your car. Two hours later, an officer shows up asking if that person is missing and it's your car that they found. How do they know that you lent that car to someone? Joanne's purse was inside the car, but the car was locked, so they couldn't open it and see Joanne's ID inside the purse. Kelly and Michelle aren't going to waste any time. Between 9.30 and 9.45 p.m., they begin calling their mom a total of 13 times. They hop in the car along with their Uncle John, who has arrived, and drive down to St. Paul and the Lake Church to see for themselves what is going on, even though police advise them against it. Mom hasn't even been missing two hours, and things are odd. They arrive at the church and say it looks like something out of a movie. There's crime scene tape, there's police lights, and complete chaos. There's a helicopter circling the water with its spotlight on. The Lexus has crime scene tape all around it. Here's the thing, though. Michelle and Kelly never reported their mom missing. They had just gotten home and realized she wasn't there. They're waiting around to see if she shows up. They hadn't gotten the chance to go out and look for her. Remember, they got home at 9 p.m. and the officer showed up at 9.24 p.m. In a lot of missing person cases, families complain that the police aren't doing enough or sometimes are told they have to wait a period of time before a missing person report can be filed. But these officers were doing this large-scale search with divers and helicopters like it was a missing two-year-old child all over a Lexus sitting in the parking lot for two hours. That just boggles my mind. The police tell Kelly and Michelle that their mom, Joanne, went into the nearby water and likely committed suicide. They're like, what? So there were these small footprints, according to police. Joanne is wearing boots with four-inch heels, and the footprints matched a set of heels that were small in Joanne's size. Her shoe size is five, which is very small, and there were heel imprints in the snow, according to the police. The footprints lead across a median in the highway separating the church from Lake St. Clair. They also found hand and butt prints in the snow at the edge of the water, like she got to the edge and scooted herself into the water. Let's go with the police's theory for a moment. Now to get from the church to the lake, Joanne, who is four foot 10 inches tall and 250 pound in 12 degree weather, wearing high heels in the snow, 
would have to begin walking up the street where she would meet the highway. She would have to walk all the way across the four-lane highway where she would be met with a rocky embankment at the water's edge. She would have to climb over a median, and the embankment is like a slanted slope. It would be damn near impossible to get down this thing in ice and snow, let alone heels. It looks dangerous even without snow. There's exposed rebar, broken concrete, and it's extremely unsafe. Unsolved Mysteries actually had a woman go out to that embankment to recreate it in the same heels, and this woman was in better shape than Joanne was. Plus, there wasn't any ice and snow at the time, and it was daylight. She couldn't do it without assistance. A man had to hold her up and guide her down to the water. I'm not saying it's 100% impossible for Joanne to do this, but at 4 foot 10 inches tall and 250 pounds, it would be extremely hard. Again, she's wearing heels, there's ice, there's snow, it's frigid cold. It just seems so unlikely. So Joanne is still missing. Police believe she's in the water and they're doing this large-scale search and hopefully rescue. But Joanne is not found. There's divers and a helicopter, but no sign of Joanne. Joanne's children have a big issue with the suicide theory. First, they say their mom was doing great. I know suicidal people are capable of appearing happy and still not, and still laughing, even the day that they actually go through with it. But Joanne, they feel, was not hiding anything like that. She was full of life. She's been divorced for five years. She's doing good. As well, they say their mom hated the water. She had zero interest at any time of getting in Lake St. Clair, even in the summer when it's 80 degrees out. Mom didn't have any kind of draw to bodies of water. So on a night when it's 12 degrees outside, she most certainly wouldn't want to go out in the water, which is much colder than it is outside. Kelly says her mom wouldn't even go near an edge where she could possibly slip and fall in the water. It just didn't happen. As well, Joanne, before going to the church, had driven to the gas station and filled her car up with gas. She didn't need a full tank of gas to go to this church that was close by. She needed a full tank of gas to get her through the week. It's hard to believe someone would fill their gas tank right before taking their life. These are the kind of things the family has to think about. There was no suicide note found. She wasn't taking any medications. And her brother John said she would be the least likely person he knows to commit suicide. The gas station attendant that night was a young guy who knew Joanne for a long time, and he said Joanne was cheerful and smiling. Joanne's doctors said that she had no history of mental illness or suicidal ideologies. The suicide theory seems very unlikely to everyone but police. According to reporter Karen Drew for Click on Detroit, in order for Joanne to get to a point where she would be able to completely submerge herself in the water and drown, she would have had to walk the length of two football fields through the water. That's how far until the water would cover her four foot 10 inch body. This water is very shallow and calm. You can put your head under one foot of water and try to drown yourself that way. However, in instances like this, your body will begin to react. You'll end up saving yourself even if you don't wanna be saved. Your body will fight involuntarily. So she would have had to go out a long, long ways you can see sheets of ice floating through the lake because the lake is partially frozen. There is no current. The lake is calm and quiet. It's not some fast rushing river. It was so shallow that you can see the bottom of it from the surface unless you walk the length of two football fields where it gets deeper. 
Some will say maybe she went to prayer service to repent her sins to God because she was going to commit suicide. But she went to prayer service all the time. This was a normal Tuesday night for her. My issue with the suicide theory is this has to be one of the worst ways to commit suicide that I could possibly think of. I can't imagine a worse way to die than going out in dark freezing waters and drowning myself in shallow water. Besides, Joanne is a devout Catholic, and suicide is something that would completely go against her religion. By the way, since I've been talking a lot about the S-word, I should add that if you were in a bad spot and you have been considering suicide, please reach out to someone. I know it's a scary place to be in. Go to someone safe. If you have no one that you trust, go to a hospital or a church. The world is a better place with you in it. Yes, you listening right now. I, Sherry from the Dark Side, am super glad that you're here. I mentioned Joanne's black leather purse was still inside the car, along with all of her belongings and $1,500 in cash. Obviously, robbery is not a motive here. Although Joanne's purse, which is fairly new, had a rip on the side, which makes it look like someone grabbed it or fought with her. Joanne's daughter says that her mom's purse was not ripped before she left. Joanne isn't one to walk around with a ripped purse anyway. Her daughter says this is a big red flag because Joanne wouldn't leave her purse in the car in the front seat, even though the doors were locked. We as women just don't do that. The purse was not processed for fingerprints. So the only things missing are her car keys, her cell phone, and her rosary, and Joanne herself. The Lexus is towed to the police station where it would be processed for evidence. There wasn't any blood or signs of a struggle. There's also no scuff scuff marks or drag marks in the snow around the car, which would indicate Joanne was fighting off someone. The family begged the officers to use canine scent dogs, but were told they wouldn't be able to detect a scent because it was too cold. A private investigator was hired by the family, and he's good. He was a detective for the sheriff's office for 25 years, and he's a crime scene expert and water expert. Definitely the right guy for this job. This private investigator said police used fingerprint dust all over the inside of the Lexus. However, because of the leather, this won't show prints. Instead, the vehicle should have been fumed with super glue. I've never heard of this practice, but it makes sense since leather is corrugated. But the police claim there are no usable fingerprints inside the vehicle. So this private detective was absolutely correct. Basically, they just powdered the inside of the vehicle with a substance that wouldn't show fingerprints. I'm not a police officer, a detective, or a forensic analyst. I don't want to act like I know more than they do. But I don't know why they wouldn't realize this type of interior was not compatible with their substance. Some time passes and there's no sign of Joanne anywhere. Her missing persons flyer is posted all over the place, and the family is holding out hope that Joanne is still alive. Even a very high-profile Midwest dive team came in to look at the water, and they spent three days looking for Joanne with their team. They said she was not in the water. The dive team director said there was no current in the water, and all they found was a lot of ice. The family tells police that in the days and weeks leading up to Joanne's disappearance, Joanne was scared and acting differently. She had something going on behind the scenes, but likely didn't want to alarm her children. But she did tell one of them, if anything happens to me, look to Tim. Now, Tim is Joanne's cousin. We're going to go back a ways so you can see this full family dynamic. So I mentioned earlier that Joanne had four siblings. She didn't get along with three of them. 
Back in 1994, when Joanne's mother died, she had left Joanne and her siblings a large inheritance. It was supposed to be divided up equally. I'm not talking a hundred grand here. Over $20 million was left. Obviously, this wine wholesale store was doing amazing. Joanne and her brother John accused the other siblings of taking more than they were supposed to. The, the other siblings were the executors of the estate. It was just a big, messy, toxic situation, which we've seen in so many cases. Joanne's brother, John, who she got along with, was a former very successful businessman who once owned a multi-million dollar corporation. But he fell into money and legal troubles, and Joanne was known to bail him out on occasion. This caused issues with her other siblings because they hounded her for constantly helping John out. In December 2009, this is less than 30 days before Joanne disappeared, her daughters recalled Joanne talking on the phone to her cousin Tim. They could only hear their mom's side of the call, but they say mom was yelling and freaking out. Joanne says to Tim on the phone, how did you get my number? Don't ever call me again. Then she says, I never said you were the root of everyone's problems. I said you need to keep your nose out of everyone's business. Some believe it's possible that Joanne was saying this to Tim because Tim is a police officer and maybe was looking into her brother John and his legal issues, maybe threatening arrest. We don't know. Whatever Tim said to her that day on the phone really upset her, and she tells her daughter, if anything happens to me, look at Tim. Joanne went with her daughter to the wholesale wine store where her brother Bill worked to try to smooth things over and put an end to all this family fighting and to tell him about the phone call she had with their cousin Tim. Her daughter sat in the car. Joanne went in for a couple minutes and came back outside even more upset than when she went in. She wouldn't tell her daughter about what was said inside or anything that happened in those couple minutes. I feel like as a mom, Joanne felt she didn't want to burden her daughter with all this family drama. She was so upset that when she left her brother Bill that she asked her daughter to drive her to church so she could pray about it. Then for the next couple weeks leading up to her disappearance, Joanne claims that she was being followed Her mail was being intercepted. Her phone was tapped. She is scared out of her mind, even having the locks on her doors changed, all because of that phone call with Tim and her interaction with Bill. Bill and Tim would both state under oath that neither of them threatened her. I know we're all looking at Tim right now as suspect number one, but I need to stress that Tim's whereabouts were accounted for the night Joanne disappeared. In 2010, Tim was a police officer for Harper Woods, and today he is an investigator for Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. Tim gave a statement to Local 4 Defenders that said, quote, On a very tragic night in January 2010, when Joanne went missing, I was on duty working a Michigan State Police Narcotics Task Force in Warren, Michigan. My location that night has been verified and confirmed by the testimony of Michigan State Troopers and corroborated with by cell phone records. After a lengthy five-year lawsuit, not one but two federal courts dismissed the case against me. Any allegations connecting me to the death of Joanne are untrue and false. To me, it seems like it was Tim and Bill versus Joanne and John. Neither Bill or Tim have ever been charged or even proved to have anything to do with Joanne's disappearance. There's not this big investigation going on by police anyway because they believe she committed suicide. Even though both of these guys to us may seem suspicious as as hell, before the airing of Unsolved Mysteries, a private plane flew over the area with a large banner that read, 
Tim and Bill Matuk, wait until the public finds out who you really are. Joanne's daughter even said to have her dad David checked into, but David was cleared and found not to have anything to do with her death, plus he passed a polygraph. On March 20th, 2010, this is 70 days since the night she walked out of the church prayer service and was never seen again. Some fishermen who were on the Canadian side of the Detroit River saw a human body wash ashore. This is 30 miles from where she disappeared. The description of the body, they say, matches that missing woman out of Gross Point, Michigan. The body was positively identified as Joanne Matuk Romaine. So here's the thing. Joanne's body was in decent shape. 70 days in the water if she was in the water that whole time, and she still looks okay. She had decomposition, obviously, and there was algae and zebra mussels stuck to her leg. Zebra mussels are these gross barnacle-looking things that attach to things in the water. The fishermen who aren't trained in decomposition could look at the body and say, this looks like that woman they've been looking for. Her coat was zipped up all the way to her chin, which her family said she never did. Her car keys were zipped up in her pocket. Her boots, which are those four-inch high heels we've been talking about, were in excellent condition. Hard to believe she would walk two football fields of icy water in those boots at night and not have any damage or even scuff marks. All of her jewelry was on as well. The family's private investigator says, quote, Her body was placed in the water somewhere near that area. It just doesn't make any sense when you examine her remains months later, where she doesn't have any of the typical things you would see on a drowning victim that would have traversed 30 miles of waterway. The autopsy showed that she had a contusion on her left arm, which is the same arm she carried her purse on that was ripped. But the craziest thing was that the autopsy showed there was no water in her lungs. Basically, her death was a dry drowning. I've heard of dry drownings before. They're pretty rare. And each time I've heard of it, it was a child. I'm not a medical examiner, but from what I know about dry drownings, they basically, it's that your lungs fill with air instead of water. This makes you buoyant and you will float. But remember, all the boats searching and helicopters that night with the spotlight did not show a body floating in the lake. If your head is spinning at this point, I apologize, but it's going to get worse. I've never had a case make my head spin like this one did. Maybe Rico Harris's case, the guy who disappeared in 2014 during a long road trip. I remember just being so confused at one point. So the car keys that were found in Joanne's pockets were the one that she used to drive the vehicle that night. We know this because Joanne had two sets of car keys, her main set and a spare set. The spare set had disappeared about six weeks before during an open house. Joanne said someone stole her keys, which freaked her out with all this other stuff going on. However, this spare set of keys that disappeared would be found at no other place than the police station the day after she vanished. The police have no recollection of how they ended up with those keys. But one officer said he took it out of Joanne's house after her disappearance, but doesn't remember who in the family gave it to him. Another weird thing is, remember that witness that came out of the church that night and said she saw an underdressed man running down the street wearing a light coat and a black scarf? Well, that black scarf was found in the area. It was taken to the station and processed as evidence, but then taken out and donated to charity. 
The timeline has been questioned as well. So remember, Michelle said that a police car pulled up in front of her house at 9.24 p.m. She remembers checking her phone so she could see the time. There's been a lot of conflict with this. The police report states that it was later than that and the Coast Guard arrived much later. Michelle's like, I know I looked at my phone and it was 9.24. I wasn't dreaming. Plus, remember, after the officer arrived, her and her sister began calling her mom 13 times. Well, this was around 9.30 and the cell phone data showed that. One thing I noted while watching Unsolved Mysteries was her brother, John, who was very close to Joanne. Well, he said back in the 2000s when the housing market crashed, he took a major hit and found himself in a lot of trouble with certain individuals. He owed a lot of people a lot of money. John says there's a possibility Joanne was killed by someone he owed money to. This sounds like a mob type hit, and that would explain why the case hasn't been solved yet. If anyone can make your death look like a suicide, it would be the mob. I'm not here to sway your mind one way or another, but just to give you the findings. Do I feel Joanne committed suicide? Absolutely not. But is it a possibility? Yes. It would be the strangest way to go about it, plus the rare occurrence of a dry drowning. Or there's a chance someone was holding her at gunpoint and making her walk into the water, but there was only one set of footprints in the snow, according to police. One expert interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries said that he's seen cases like this before, and police will arrive at the scene and quickly make the determination that it's a suicide, and then everything after that is geared toward is geared toward proving this theory, almost like tunnel vision. To me, the suicide theory is lazy. The police chief said he knew it was a suicide in five minutes. The expert also viewed the photographs from the case and said the footprint photographs were not done at a 90-degree angle or using a ruler next to them, which would be pretty, pretty important to do. I looked at the snow tracks, and to me, as an untrained person, have I have no idea how they know these are Joanne's size 5 prints, especially without a ruler. The snow is pretty disturbed, and it looks like someone for sure walked through it, but I can't tell if they're a child's prints or a men's size 13. According to Unsolved Mysteries fandom, even the family's private investigator said that the crime scene was trampled all over and nothing was properly photographed or documented. It reads that when he looked at the photographs taken of the footprints, all he could tell was that something had walked through the snow. He says it could have been anybody or anything based on the photographs. Again, I'm not an expert, but just as a person viewing the pictures, and I can't tell. The police say these footprints belong to a small size 5 high-heeled boot. This whole case just doesn't sit right with me. If you go on the internet right now and look up Joanne Matuk Romaine, you're going to see that most people believe this is a police cover-up or that someone close to her made her disappear and was responsible for her murder. Her family has hired multiple investigators that are trained in this kind of stuff, and they all believe that this is not a suicide. According to Screen Rant, it says that Unsolved Mysteries left out the part where a witness named Paul Hawk came forward. He told police he saw Joanne's Lexus parked next to another vehicle around the time she disappeared. Here's the crazy part. He says that he saw Joanne's cousin Tim sitting in the driver's seat of that other car and said it appeared to be a police car. The police say he was not a credible witness and the statement was dismissed, but the family says, listen to Paul Hawk, listen to what he's saying. But remember, I have to throw this out there, Tim was cleared and was at a crime scene during the time Joanne disappeared. Paul Hawk was so adamant about what he saw that he even went to the FBI. 
but nothing ever came out of it. I read on the family's Facebook page that Paul Hawk passed away recently at the age of 55, and they were so grateful for him and him trying to assist with this case. Something that stood out to me is that his obituary read off all his accomplishments, etc. Then it says, quote, The past 10 years were a great example of Paul doing what is right regardless of the personal cost. He was a witness to a potential murder and never backed down despite years of intimidation and harassment. Paul had nothing to gain and lots to lose, but he always chose to do the right thing. Wow. If Joanne was murdered, whether by someone she knew or just a robbery gone wrong and the robber for some strange reason didn't take the $1,500 she had on her, this person needs to be held accountable. If she committed suicide, this would be extremely out of character and just an awful way to take her life. Her family says there is no way she committed suicide. It just wouldn't happen. There have been no new developments in the last couple years. The family has a petition on change.org that currently has 11,000 signatures, 11,001 once I get done here. I'm not sure who started it, but it was likely her daughter. It reads... Myself and my team of attorneys and investigators are calling on the FBI, the Attorney General of Michigan, the Governor of Michigan, and the U.S. Department of Justice to stand up, take charge, do a proper and thorough investigation, and bring this case to justice once and for all. I'll link it in my sources. Once it gets to a certain amount of signatures, it will go on the governor's desk for a review. Rest in peace to Joanne, who would be 69 years old today in 2024. I hope your family gets the answers they need soon. That's it for this week, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care, and much love to you all.